June 1, 2009. Air France 447 and Airbus A330 is on a regularly scheduled flight between Rio de Janeiro, Brazil and Paris, France with 216 passengers and 12 crew members on board. Just over three and a half hours into this 10 and a half hour flight, the plane is over the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and entering into some storms. Without warning, the plane's airspeed indicators become unreliable and the autopilot disengages as a result. The pilots take manual control of the plane and begin wrestling with the controls as the plane rocks left to right and begins plummeting out of the sky. Just over four minutes later, the plane hits the water at over 175 miles an hour, killing all on board. How did a four-year-old state-of-the-art plane end up in this situation? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Black Box Down. I'm Gus, and I'm here with Chris yet again. Good morning, Hello. Chris. How are you good doing? Good morning. I'm good. It's time to record another episode. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm always really bad about reminding people at the beginning of the episode to uh, follow us on social media, so I'm going to get that out of the way real fast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BlackBoxDownPod. Uh, we post images and links there that maybe, you know, we can't adequately convey via audio. Maybe like a little supplemental reading or a supplemental visual material if you want to check it out. And please, uh, if you're enjoying it, please give us a rating on whatever application you're listening to or just on social media. Yeah, tell someone to uh, to give us a listen. We would greatly appreciate it. I look through a lot of social media posts. I'm finding a lot of people who say that they think they would not have any interest in this subject matter, but then they give the podcast a try and then they find it super interesting. So I'm always encouraged when I see uh, <laughs> feedback like that. Because like, I don't know if I'm the, we- I-, I know I'm a weirdo, but I don't know if like, I'm a super weirdo who really enjoys this stuff and like I'm all alone in the world. But it's comforting to see that other people find it interesting to look at as well. You're not alone in the world, Gus. I'm not you have alone. friends. <laughs> and most importantly, <laughs> I've got a Chris with me <laughs> to, uh, to make the podcast uh, with. If you're going to be stuck on the world with just one person, I don't think I'd be your first choice. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be an interesting choice. You'd keep me on my toes, I think, Chris. All right. I'll take it. So if we're on a plane and it crashes on an island... We'll see. Well, we, we can we can have debates if if we survive. We can <laughs> debate over what was the cause of a, of our plane accident. Okay, so today specifically, we're talking about Air France Flight Four Four Seven. I think this is a super interesting one. Uh, I think that I say that. I think I say that all the time. That's why we do these these episodes. That's why we do these incidents. Mm-hmm. These are the ones that I find really interesting. This one happened just about eleven years ago. Like I said, it was a passenger flight from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil to uh, Paris, France. Uh, it was on an Airbus A330. It was a fairly new plane. I want to say this plane was about four years old. The plane had its first flight in February 25th, 2005. It was delivered to Air France April 18th, 2005. So it was barely over four years old. This particular plane did have a previous incident on August 17th, 2006, when it collided with an Airbus A321 on the ground at Charles de Gaulle Airport in, in Paris. Like, how do they collide on the ground? Were they landing or was it just like... They were both taxiing. I think if I remember, I I don't remember specifically off the top of my head. I believe one of them was backing up and they kind of clipped each other. Oh. There wasn't a serious incident, but, you know, they they do sustain damage. The other plane, the Airbus A321, was substantially damaged. Uh, This particular plane, this A330 in this incident, only had some minor damage. Okay. It's like backing your car into someone else in a parking lot. Exactly. You'd be surprised. It's, It's not a common occurrence, but it does happen. On April 16th, 2009, this plane underwent a major overhaul. Uh, and at the time of the accident, it had about just under 19,000 hours accumulated. Okay. And uh, at the time of the accident, this was Air France's newest A330. So again, it was a very new plane, recently overhauled. Everything should have been fine with it. Yeah. It sounds like, just based off the initial kind of overview you gave, they're always like, oh, you know, planes never have problems during turbulence or storms or anything. It's always like landing or taking off. But this is, it sounds at the surface like a bad storm and something went wrong. You right. Know? I mean, you're right. You'd almost never hear about 
a plane falling out of the sky at cruising altitude for, you know, what happened. Normally when that happens, you think, oh, you know, maybe there was a bomb or something Mm -hmm. catastrophic happened to the plane. You know, that's going to be your first thought because a perfectly functioning plane doesn't just fall out of the sky. Yeah. We're going to dig into this thought process in just a little bit, but you're, you're absolutely right. This kind of thing should not happen. So this plane was flown by Captain Marc Dubois, who was 58 years old. Uh, he'd been with Air France since February of 1988. He had about 11,000 flying hours. So he'd been with the airline for quite a bit of time. Ex- very experienced uh, captain. The first officer was David... Ro- okay, I'm going to say David Robert, French name. It's, it's, it's spelled David Robert, but it's, it's probably David Robert. It's a uh, cool name. Yeah. Uh, who's uh, 27 years old. He'd been with Air France since July of 1998, and he had about 6,500 flight hours. Uh, and then they had another first officer, Pierre Cedric Bonin, who had joined Air France in 2009 and had a, under 3,000 flight hours. Again, this is like we had talked about a similar flight. I forget which flight it was. We talked about why on some long-haul flights there'll be one captain and two first officers so they can relieve each other throughout mm-hmm. the flight. Uh, footnote about first officer Pierre uh, Cedric Bonin. His wife was on the flight. She was a physics teacher and uh, she was on the flight as well. He was the one who was actually the pilot flying at the time of the crash. So not, not good. The flight departed from Rio May 31st, 2009 at 7.29 p.m. Brazilian Standard Time, which is 10.29 p.m. Universal Time. Uh, the rest of this episode, we're only going to give Universal Time. I just gave the Brazilian Time because they're taking off from Rio uh, right then. Universal Time, is that from England where, where the center of the uh, longitude and latitude is? Uh, right, the, the, the Prime Meridian. Yeah, Prime it Meridian. Used, used to be called Greenwich Mean Time. Uh, yeah. Now it's Universal Time. So it's basically like, you know, we're, you and I, Chris, we live in Texas. It's typically UTC minus six. So we're six hours behind. It would be UTC zero is universal time. Okay. So the plane, like I said, took off at 10.29 p.m. universal time. It was scheduled to arrive at Charles de Gaulle, Paris uh, at 9.03 a.m. universal time, which was 11.03 a.m. Paris time. So estimated flight time of about 10 hours and 34 minutes. The last vocal message received from the plane was a position report saying they had passed Waypoint Intal, which is located 305 nautical miles off of Natal, which is on Brazil's northeastern coast. So we talk about these waypoints before. It's just, I mean, you can you can look it up if you want. You can Google Intol, I-N-T-O-L, and that'll show you where it is. They're just navigation points that planes use. It's mm-hmm. out over the ocean. So it was about 305 nautical miles northeast off of Brazil, heading over the Atlantic. And it left Brazilian Atlantic radar surveillance at 1.49 a.m. universal time. At about 1.55 a.m. universal time, Captain Dubois woke up First Officer Robert so they could switch places so that he could take his break. Again, this is a long flight, so they have to do their crew rotation. Uh, the captain's going to go on break, so the other First Officer's going to come in and relieve him. They do a quick mm-hmm. debrief, and Dubois leaves the cockpit at 2.01 a.m. Universal Time. At 2.06 a.m., uh, Bonin warned the cabin crew that they were about to enter some turbulence. I've got an actual quote here from the cockpit voice recorder. Oh. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to read it in French. I'm going to read the oh. English translation. <laughs> Can you do it uh, with a French accent? I, I w- I, that would probably sound insensitive, so I'm not going to do that. But um, he, uh, you know, he rings the, the flight attendant, to the head flight attendant, to let her know. And uh, here's the CVR quote. He says, yes, Marilyn, it's Pierre up front. Listen, in two minutes, we're going to be getting into an area where things are going to be moving around a little bit more than now. You'll want to take care. A few minutes later, the aircraft encountered icing conditions. The cockpit voice recorder picked up what sounded like hail or snow pellets hitting the outside of the aircraft, and ice crystals started to accumulate in the pitot tubes, which are little tubes that measure the airspeed on the outside of the plane. What are they called? Pitot tubes. It's P-I-T-O-T. So in response, First Officer Bonin Mm -hmm. turned the plane slightly to the left and decreased the speed from 546 knots to 533 knots, which is 628 miles an hour to 613 miles an hour. 
or 1011 kilometers an hour to 987 kilometers an hour. So this is the recommended turbulence penetration speed and the engine anti-ice system was turned on. So he's doing the right thing. He's mm -hmm. turning a little bit, you know, taking uh, the speed down where it should be and turning on the anti-icing system to be safe. So I want to clarify something real fast. You did ask what I said a little while ago, the pitot tube. Uh-huh. So pitot tubes, it's this little device used on an airplane to measure airspeed. It's a little slender tube that has two holes on it. And the front hole is placed in the airstream to measure, you know, the pressure coming in. Uh, there's some technical terms here I'm going to kind of gloss over. It, okay. So basically it measures the pressure at the front of the tube and then on the side of the tube. And then it, it kind of calculates the difference between that pressure. And then it uses that to calculate airspeed. It's like a little straw sticking off the plane and it just measures how fast the wind's coming in. Okay. That's a very simple yeah. way to look at it, but that's what it looks like. If, you, if you're ever looking at the outside of a plane when you're getting on, out by the cockpit, you'll sometimes see them sticking out. They look like little, they're short little metal tubes. They're not long, like four to six inches maybe. Uh, if you follow Black Box Down Pod on social media, I'll, I'll, I'm going to post some pictures of pitot tubes just so you see what it is. So like I said, they can be put on a couple of different places. Typically, you see them uh, out in front of the cockpit. Sometimes it can be on the wing or sticking out somewhere on the fuselage. It's a very common device. This episode of Black Box Down is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. I know every day somebody tells you you just have to listen to some podcast, you nod and say sure, and you know you say you're going to get to it, you never listen to it. Uh, don't let that happen here. Jordan Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better, more informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, you know, even inside your own brain. Uh, each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest, and I mean, there's something for everyone here, and I really mean it. On one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which is, you know, pretty useful, something I could definitely use, believe it or not. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. I mean, you can look through. He's got such a wide range of guests. He's had Kobe Bryant on. Uh, he's had Bill Nye on. Uh, he had Bob Saget on. Uh, they're all super interesting, super diverse uh, group of guests that he talks to. Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. And we're not talking about, you know, pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. I mean, if that's not worth checking out, I don't know what is. We really enjoy the show. I think you will as well. Just search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Black Box Down is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Now, I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode if you want to hide something you're searching for online? I get it, but let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not actually hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. I got it on right now. It uh, doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon, Comcast, or whoever your local ISP is. ISPs in the United States can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure server so your ISP cannot see the sites you visit. Uh, ExpressVPN also keeps all your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Uh, most of the time, I don't even realize I have it on. It runs so seamlessly in, in the background. It's easy to use. All you do is tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, you know, phones, computers, smart TVs. There's no reason for you not to be using it. So protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link at expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. You get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown to learn more.
At 2.10 uh, universal time, the autopilot disengages. The thought is that it's probably because the pitot tubes became blocked. And the pitot tubes are how the plane measures its airspeed. So, you know, when they get blocked, the computer doesn't know what the airspeed is. So the autopilot disengages here. Yeah, it probably got frozen over. Probably, right. You know, like I said, we were encountering a storm. There were some icing conditions. Uh, It's possible that they did get frozen over. It's speculated that it's possible the autopilot also maybe lowered the nose of the airplane a little bit in order to try to increase airspeed mm-hmm. since the autopilot wasn't quite sure what was going on. Yeah. According to the BEA's final report, the BEA is the French, uh, like the French version of the NTSB. They do the uh, aircraft incident investigations. So according to the BEA's final report, the disconnection of the autopilot was more noticeable than that drop in the airspeed indicator. When the autopilot disconnected, the aircraft transitioned from what's called normal law to alternate law two. Okay, well, this is <laughs> this mm. is something that's incredibly complicated. I feel like I barely have a grasp on it because I'm I say all the time I'm not a pilot, but I'm going to try my best to to explain what's going on here. Okay. So, when I talk about normal law and alternate law 2, these are flight control modes that refer to how the computer software translates the movement of the aircraft controls to electronic signals. So, this is basically the logic that the computer in the plane uses in order to translate the pilot's control inputs to the control surfaces of the plane. Okay. So, you know, we talk about uh, yokes and control columns. Mm-hmm. And this particular plane, which is manufactured by Airbus, they have little side sticks. They look like joysticks that are to the sides of the pilots, and that's how they input their controls. So it's it's like off to their sides. Yeah. And they shifted from which one? They shifted from what's called normal law to alternate law two. Okay. Okay, I'm going to dig in a little more into that right now. If the passengers uprise, do they ever have to enter martial law? Only if uh, there's a passenger named Marshall on the uh, oh, okay. on the flight, then 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 <laughs> okay. he gets put in charge, and it's martial <laughs> law. If the captain's named Marshall, then they play paper rock scissors to determine uh, whose martial law wins. Okay. Uh, so these laws have protections that prevent the aircraft from exceeding certain limitations, right? Because they don't want you to do something that's going to endanger the plane. So in normal law, there's five protections. Mm-hmm. It's pitch attitude load factor limitations, high speed, high angle of attack, and bank angle. So it's just kind of there to make sure the the pilot doesn't input some crazy input to the plane that makes it do something dangerous. Okay. So alternate law two loses the normal law lateral mode and is replaced by roll direct mode and yaw alternate mode. It also loses pitch attitude protection, bank angle protection, and low energy protection. So basically... Since the flight computer didn't have access to all the data it needed, it just couldn't provide as many safeguards as it normally does. Gotcha. That's that's an easy overview to think about it, right? So normal is just like, hey, we're going to limit it so that if someone like trips and bumps into the stick, it doesn't do a flip, right? right. It keeps it from making extreme changes. Sure. But but then whenever it didn't have the input to understand what was going on, so it's just like, all right, we're, it's like more manual. Right. It's like it loses some of the protections and it switches the protections that it does still have to alternate operating methods. Gotcha. So one of the things that triggers the switch to alternate law two is the loss of autopilot. Uh, so along with the autopilot going out, the auto thrust systems are disengaged. So like you can see, the plane is not going to respond the way that they're used to at this point because the law has changed. Uh, so Bonin declared that he is now taking control of the plane. Due to the turbulence, the plane started a roll to the right. So Bonin adjusted by deflecting his side stick to the left, that little joystick I told you about. Uh-huh. So one of the consequences of alternate law two is it increases the aircraft's sensitivity to roll, and they didn't realize that the flight mode had changed. So Bonin overcorrected on his input. 
he moved it thinking it was still a normal law, but since it was an alternate law, the plane moved much more than he expected. Oh. So for the next 30 seconds, the plane kind of rolls back and forth as, you know, Bonin's trying to correct uh, his inputs. Does it not alert them that it's switched to alternate law? There is an indicator on one of the displays that normally it says normal law. It does switch to say alternate law too. I can't speak to the A330 cockpit specifically, but it might be a very small indicator on one of the displays. Hmm. And it might not be something they immediately look at. In addition to, you know, trying to correct this roll, Bonin also starts pulling back on the stick, raising the nose a little bit. Then the aircraft's stall warning sounds briefly twice, and the aircraft's recorded airspeed drops from 274 knots to 52 knots, which is 315 miles an hour to 60 miles an hour. That's a lot. Yeah, or 507 kilometers an hour to 96 kilometers an hour. It's a big drop, but at this point, we don't know if it's because the pitot tube is blocked. Remember, their airspeed oh. indicators might be malfunctioning. By the time Bonin had controlled the roll, the plane was climbing at a speed of nearly 7,000 feet per minute. And to put that in a frame of reference, when you're on a plane and you're climbing in an airliner, normally you're only climbing two to 3,000 feet per minute. Mm -hmm. uh, he was climbing at 7,000 feet per minute. So they were really shooting up. That's why it slowed down, because yes. they're just going straight up. Yeah, they're not, not necessarily straight up, but they're going up at a yeah. pretty significant angle. Uh, and then when they're at altitude, they don't even go up that fast. Like when I say you would go up two to 3,000 feet per minute, that's mm -hmm. at sea level. When you're at a higher altitude, you don't go up nearly that fast. So this was a very uh, quick ascent that they were making. Uh, at 2.10 a.m., the left side instruments recorded a sharp rise in the airspeed to 223 knots, or 257 miles an hour, or 413 kilometers an hour. So at this point, the pedal icing had cleared. Okay. That's why the, the airspeed rose so sharply. However, Bonin was still pulling back on his stick, making nose-up inputs. The trimmable horizontal stabilizer moved three degrees to 13 degrees nose-up in about one minute and remained in this position until the end of the flight. So this trim basically helps keep the plane stable when flying so the pilots don't have to constantly be inputting controls. Mm -hmm. This being set to nose-up is not a good thing in this scenario. Oh. At 2.11 a.m., the aircraft climbed to 38,000 feet and had an angle of attack of 16 degrees, and the thrust levers were set to fully forward, and the angle of attack actually increased to 30 degrees. If the aircraft was in normal law, the plane would not have allowed this to happen. It would not have allowed this angle of attack to reach 30 degrees, but they were still in alternate law too, so that protection did not exist for them. Gotcha. Uh, the plane lost lift because of this high angle of attack, and it stalled. And you remember our last episode, Colgan Air, we also dealt with a stall. Mm -hmm. You go up too much, too fast, and all of a sudden it like... Right, your, your plane is angled too high to generate lift over the wings. Yeah. So in the last episode, you know, when, it, when Colgan Air crashed, they were very low to the ground, so they didn't have time to react. Mm -hmm. And that's why they ended up crashing. This plane, Air France 447, is at cruising altitude. And do you remember what we said last time, what you're supposed to do in a stall? Tilt it down so that it increases speed. Exactly. Or, right? You nailed it. Since they're at cruising altitude, they should have plenty of altitude to nose down, increase their speed, and get out of a stall. Yeah. However, at this point, Bonin exclaimed that he no longer has any control of the airplane now. What? Right. First Officer Robert responds by saying, controls to the left, which is a command that means he wants to take control and fly the plane. Robert pushes his side stick forward to lower the nose and recover from the stall, but Bonin did not recognize this exchange of controls, and he kept pulling back on his stick. Oh, no. These two inputs canceled each other out because, you know, the computer takes in inputs and figures out what to do to the plane. One person's pulling back, the other person's pushing forward. The plane cancels each other out. So with two pilots, they 
counteract each other? If so, if there are two people both turning, one turning hard left, one turning hard right, they just go straight. I mean, it depends on how the computer is configured to deal with those inputs. It might be different. You know, we've already kind of touched on the different laws that mm -hmm. the computer can use. It could depend on the law of the, oh. the computer at the time. I'm not an Airbus pilot. I've yeah. never flown a commercial plane. I have no idea how it's going to interpret that. But my guess would be that, yes, it does average them out and it would cancel each other out. That's, that's weird. I always thought it would just be like one person is in control and they switch it to the other person. Right. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a design philosophy. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, you know, in the past, we've talked about control columns and yokes. And when some manufacturers build planes, the two control inputs, like the two yokes or the two control columns are linked together. So if one pilot puts in an input, it moves the other pilots as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In this particular case, since they have side sticks, these little joysticks on the side, they can input whatever they want and it doesn't affect the other joystick. Oh. To make matters a little worse, the way that they're situated, they can't easily see each other's side sticks. It's mm. not like the side sticks are in the middle of the plane. They're on the sides. Yeah. So again, this kind of a design philosophy and it's just a different way of thinking about controlling the plane. Okay. Honestly, this kind of touches on some of the stuff we talked about last week as well in the Colgan Air episode where you talked about like, or we both talked about how, what do you trust in an emergency? Do you trust the computer on the plane or do you trust the humans flying the plane? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what law is your computer in? How is it going to input? Is it going to trust your pilots? Is it not? Is it going to override your pilots? There's a lot of thought that goes into this. There's a lot of things you have to think about, a lot of situations you have to consider. And, you know, we're in the middle of one of them here right now with Air France 447. Yeah. So at 2.11 a.m., Captain Dubois re-enters the cabin after having been summoned by First Officer Robert, and he asks what's going on. Because at this point, several alarms are going off. The angle of attack is now at 40 degrees. Uh, the aircraft had fallen to 35,000 feet and was descending at a rate of 10,000 feet per minute. The airplane kept rolling to the right and Bonin kept inputting to the left and back. During this time, the stall warning sound kept going on and off. It would turn off when the airspeed dropped below a certain number. It would come back on if the nose was dropped and the airspeed was gained. Then it would turn back off if the airspeed was allowed to rise more. The whole situation was very confusing. So at 2.12... Bonin decreased the angle of attack slightly, but it never went below 35 degrees, which is still very steep. Robert told Dubois they had lost control of the plane and they don't understand what is happening. Robert then to himself says, climb four times. You know, maybe he was just kind of praying or, you know, hoping that the uh -huh. plane climbed. Then Bonin replies, but I've been at maximum nose up for a while. And then when Dubois hears this, he realized that Bonin's been causing the stall the whole time. Uh oh, And he shouts at him, no, 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 don't climb. No, no, no. First officer Robert told Bonin to give him control of the plane. Bonin complied. Robert pushed his stick forward to try to regain lift, but at this point the aircraft was already really low and the ground proximity warning system sounds an alarm, warning the crew about oh. an imminent crash into the ocean. Uh, and in response to this, Bonin pulls back again on the stick without telling the other people. The last recording on the CVR is Dubois saying, 10 degrees pitch attitude, and the flight data recorder stopped at 2.14 a.m., which was three oh. hours and 45 minutes after takeoff. The aircraft's ground speed was 107 knots, which is 123 miles an hour or 198 kilometers an hour. And it was descending at a rate of almost 11,000 feet a minute, which was 124 miles an hour or 200 kilometers an hour. So it hit really fast. Yeah. So 11,000 feet? 11,000 feet a minute, which is about 124 miles an hour. Okay. And so basically, if they were at cruising altitude of around 38, 40, they had like three to three and four and a half minutes, minutes yeah, yeah. To, to figure it out and correct it. The, the plane's pitch was 16.2 degrees nose up, and it was rolled 5.3 degrees to the left. 
Uh, during its descent, it had turned more than 180 degrees to the right. So basically, it had turned around. Uh, it had remained stalled during the entire 3 minute and 30 second descent. Oh, my God. The aircraft struck the ocean belly first at a speed of 152 knots, which is 175 miles an hour or 281 kilometers an hour. And all 228 passengers and crew on board died on impact and the aircraft was destroyed. That's so scary. I mean, just imagine just being a passenger on that plane because it feels it seems like a lot of these like incidents, they happen almost immediately or like the passengers aren't even aware of it. But like they're just cruising and all of a sudden like things go crazy for like four minutes as you just sink for that long you know what i mean like yeah and in reality i mean i can't say for certain the passengers might not have known they were crashing the passengers what? just might have felt like it was turbulence but they, you don't think they would feel if they were falling that fast the, think the, about it when you're on the plane you don't feel like you're going 500 miles an hour you don't feel like you're going that fast they weren't falling nose first the plane basically belly flopped into the ocean huh so it's like they, you know, they, they were rocking a little bit left to right. What did I say the pitch was? And, the, you know, the, the pitch was 16.2 degrees nose up, 5.3 degrees to the left. Maybe they thought it was turbulent and they were banking a little bit. Uh-huh. They might not have known. Oh, my God. Since they were out over the ocean, there's really no lights. It was nighttime. And they were just kind of just like falling to the, basically just falling from the sky, right? Right. Huh. And I mean, even, even the pilots, if you think about it, they didn't realize necessarily that what was going on either you know they were confused trying to figure it out as well and they're the ones flying the plane yeah so i mean it's it's possible that maybe it felt like rough turbulence to the passengers uh maybe some people thought they were crashing but you know i've been in really bad turbulence on a plane over an ocean before mm -hmm. you know i'm sure you have too at some point yeah. the thought probably never enters your mind that oh we're about to hit the ocean yeah yeah so i mean this is really crazy to think about you know first officer robert is trying to correct the situation he's pushing down on the stick he doesn't realize that he's fighting his uh, his other first officer. If that first officer hadn't been panicking and pulling back on his stick, this probably would have been easily corrected. Yeah. You know, they probably would have nosed down for just a couple of minutes, not even a couple of minutes. They probably would have nosed down for a few seconds, regained their airspeed, and then just continued on their way. Oh, man. A another thing that, that happens here is the captain had left the cockpit for his rest. So yeah. there were two first officers flying the plane. So there also may have been no clear directive as to who was in charge. Hmm. You know, we've talked about crew resource management. And, you know, this is an example of a failure of crew resource management. There was a lack of effective communication between the two first officers. And the, which, you know, which is what led to the conflicting inputs. Yeah. Even when Dubois reentered the cockpit, if he had taken controls, then automatically the other first officer would have deferred to him. Yeah. So it's like, uh, this. I mean, it's, it's bad to play these what if games, but... Man, you know, if he had just come in, saw there was an emergency, and they immediately taken control, maybe things would have gone differently. Yeah, but he didn't know that it was what it was, so. Right, all he knew was that the first officer were telling him that they had lost control of the plane. It's just a really terrible situation. So, Flight 447 was due to pass from Brazilian airspace to Senegalese airspace at approximately 2.20 a.m., and then to Cape Verdean airspace at approximately 3.45 a.m., Shortly after 4 a.m., when the aircraft failed to contact either airspace, a controller in Senegal attempted to make contact with the plane. And when he received no response, he asked another Air France crew, which is Air France 459, to try to contact 447, but they had no success either. Mm -hmm. After a few more unsuccessful attempts, an aerial search was started. And the search was led by Senegal and consisted of Brazilian Air Force, French reconnaissance aircraft, a maritime patrol aircraft from Spain, and a U.S. Navy anti-submarine and maritime patrol aircraft. 
So by early afternoon on June 1st, officials from Air France and the French government had already presumed the aircraft had been lost with no survivors. Uh, an announcement was made uh, as such. On June 2nd, the Brazilian Air Force spotted a wreckage and signs of oil or jet fuel. I'm gonna. I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher these, <laughs> these uh, Portuguese names. So they spotted oil or jet fuel about three miles northeast of Fernando de Noronha Island near the St. Peter and St. Paul Archipelago, which is over 500 miles away from the northeast coast of Brazil. And later that day, Brazilian Defense Minister Nelson Jobim announced that the Air Force believed that this was the wreckage of Flight 447. Hmm. On June 6th, two male bodies were found and brought aboard the Brazilian Navy ship Caboclo, along with a seat, a computer bag, a vaccination card, and a leather briefcase that contained a boarding pass for the flight. And, you know, this evidence was enough to confirm to the investigation the crash had killed everyone on board. On June 7th, search crews recovered the vertical stabilizer, which, remember, we talked about last episode. It's like the tail fin, people would probably call it. Okay. Which was the first major piece of wreckage that was found. A 120,000 square mile section of the ocean was searched, and by June 16th, 50 bodies had been recovered and identified, including the body of Captain Dubois. On June 5th, 2009, they began the underwater search for the black boxes, and this was followed by a second search phase starting in late July that lasted until August 20th, and a third phase that started on April 2nd, lasting until May 24th. The, the different phases are still for the black box or just for different things? So yeah, these, these are for the, for the black box. So you see, I mean, this is over a long period of time, you know, uh, on June 5th, they begin the primary search that lasts until July. And then, you know, they do a second phase from July to August and the third phase the next year from April mm-hmm. until May. And none of these searches are successful. In July of 2010, the U.S. search consultancy, Metron Incorporated, had been asked to drop a probability map on where to focus a search based on prior information. And a new search would start in 2011. So this is two years after the plane crash. Mm -hmm. On April 3rd, 2011, within a week of the start of this search, the debris field was discovered that belonged to 447. The debris was found at a depth of 13,060 feet and was in a relatively flat area of the ocean floor. On April 26th, a first dive mission took place and the flight data recorder chassis was found, but not the memory unit itself. On May 1st, the memory unit was found and the following day, so was the cockpit voice recorder. And then between May 5th and June 3rd, 104 bodies were recovered from the wreckage and the search ended with 74 bodies still lost. By the end of 2010, the uh, search had cost 22 million euros and the total cost when it was all said and done for the search was 32 million euros. Damn. You know, a couple episodes ago, we talked about Malaysia Flight 370. They spent years looking for that one and never found mm-hmm. it. You know, here it took about two years and 32 million euros, but they actually did manage to find this plane and the bodies and the wreckage, uh, even though it was the middle of the ocean. Yeah, I guess it's it's weird. You don't think like, oh, they'll, they won't find it after two or three years, but I guess they get better data and better search methods or? Right, like it's just about more data and trying to narrow down where it is. Because remember when I mentioned earlier, when the plane finally hit the ocean, it had turned 180 degrees away from its heading. So it was not heading in the direction that it was supposed That's to. That's right. So it's like once you get off course, then... And plus also it was out of radar coverage. They don't know exactly where it crashed. Mm-hmm. They're, they're really trying to take a guess. The BEA started investigation into the flight and it was joined by Brazilian Air Force's Aeronautical Accidents Investigations and Prevention Center, the German Federal Bureau of Aircraft Accident Investigation, the Air Accidents Investigation Branch, and the NTSB, along with observers from several other countries. So this really was a multinational effort to figure out what happened here. Yeah. On June 5th, 2009, the BEA cautioned against speculation of the crash. Uh, at this time, they only knew two facts. The first fact was the weather near the aircraft's planned route indicated significant convective cells typical of these regions. And second, that the speeds measured by the three pitot tubes differed from each other during the last few minutes of the flight. Uh, in the minutes before the crash, the plane had transmitted five failure reports and 19 warnings via the ACARS. Remember, we talked about ACARS before. This is the automated reporting system. Mm-hmm. 
These transmissions included a fault in the pitot-static system, the change from normal law to alternate law 2, and a cabin vertical speed warning. And so this is how the BEA was able to know what it knew at the time without having the flight data recorder. Gotcha. So on July 2nd, 2009, the BEA issued an intermediate report that stated the airliner was likely to have struck the surface of the sea in a normal flight attitude with a high rate of descent, there were no signs of fire or explosions, and the airliner did not break up in flight. So they found initially the black box, but not the recording or what? So they, they, they're able to draw these speculations because they have ACARS data. The plane is transmitting ACARS data. Oh, yeah, the, that they send to the, okay. Exactly. So they're able to receive some information that leads them to know these things. You know, they're still not going to find the black box for another two years, but yeah. they're fairly confident in these statements that they can make. And so that's why they issue this intermediate report. Like we don't have all the answers yet but we're pretty sure this is what happened. Okay. You know, again, we talked about ACARS in the Malaysia 370 episode, which is episode 10. Uh, that's why, you know, they were kind of able to track where Malaysia 370 was more or less, and they were able to get some little bits of information. It's the same thing here that they're able to draw this speculation for Air France 447. So on May 27th, 2011, the BEA released an update on its investigation now that they had access to the flight data recorder. The data provided confirmed that the aircraft did not break up in air, but it revealed that the descent was not a mechanical problem due to weather conditions, but because of a stall caused by the crew raising the nose of the aircraft. Mm -hmm. They do not know why the crew would raise the nose like they did, but a factor they considered was since that the A330 doesn't allow for a stall to take place in normal law, the crew did not know that a stall could take place in alternate law. So they speculate that maybe the crew thought, it's impossible for us to stall the plane, it's okay, not realizing that they weren't in normal law. Oh, are they not trained in the different laws separately? You know what I mean? Yes and no. So yes, they are. But for the most part, I think these pilots and a lot of pilots might think like they don't have to worry about this at cruising altitude. The plane's going to mm. take care of itself. Uh, we're going to touch on this a little bit here uh, about some of the, the recommendations as a result of this crash. So we're going to circle back to that in just a second. So a third report was released on July 29th, 2011 with some new statements. First, the pilots had not applied the unreliable airspeed procedure. Second, the pilot in control pulled back on the stick, causing the plane to climb rapidly and causing the high angle of attack. The pilots did not read out the available data, which is like vertical velocity, uh, altitude. The pilots did not comment on the stall warnings and apparently did not realize they were in a stall. Uh, the stall warning deactivates when the airspeed drops below a certain limit and the stall warning would come back on when the nose would drop and the airspeed would rise. So they probably were getting confused. So it's like, think about it from their perspective, right? They, they're stalling, so they push the nose down, and then a stall warning comes on, Yeah, which is counterintuitive. What could have been happening was their airspeed was so low, the plane didn't think they were flying, so it deactivated the stall warning. And then when the speed increased, the plane realized, oh no, we are flying and we're stalling, the stall warning comes on. Uh -huh. So, but of course, in the heat of the moment, they're not realizing that. Lastly, the pilots were unable to determine which instruments to trust. Air France released a bulletin indicating that the misleading stopping and starting of the stall warning alarm greatly contributed to the crew's difficulty in analyzing the situation. Hmm. A final report from the BEA was released on July 5th, 2012, and stated the accident resulted from the following succession of major events. Temporary inconsistencies between the measured speed causing autopilot disconnection and reconfiguration to alternate law. Mm -hmm. The crew made inappropriate control inputs that destabilized the flight path. The crew failed to follow appropriate procedure for loss of displayed airspeed information. The crew were late in identifying and correcting the deviation from the flight path. Mm -hmm. The crew lacked understanding of the approach to stall. The crew failed to recognize the aircraft had stalled and consequently did not make inputs that would made it possible to recover. Yeah. 
I mean, it seems like it was primarily just the crew, not as much like a technical malfunction. Right. I mean, there were technical issues, but the crew reacted improperly. Like the pitot tubes got blocked. I mean, that yeah. should be such a minor thing to overcome. Yeah. So these events resulted in the following major factors in combination. Feedback mechanisms on the part of those involved made it impossible to identify and remedy the reposed non-application of the procedure for inconsistent airspeed and to ensure that the crews were trained in icing of the pitot probes and its consequences. The crew lacked practical training in manually handling the aircraft both at high altitude and in the event of anomalies and speed indication. So this is what you were asking about. The crew lacked that training in manually flying the plane at altitude. Yeah. So this ties into normal law versus alternate law. The two co-pilots' task sharing was weakened both by incomprehension of the situation and by poor management of being startled, leaving them in an emotionally charged situation. The cockpit lacked a clear display of inconsistencies in airspeed readings. The crew did not respond to the stall warning in any way. So mm. things would have been really confusing for the pilots. But basic training in how to recover from a stall is you just put your nose down. You know, it's unfortunate the pilots were not able to perform under pressure and ended up in this terrible tragedy. Yeah. After the incident, pitot probes in both Air France A330s and A340s were replaced by ones from a different manufacturer. Air France crews were given more training on unreliable airspeed situations as well as alternate law situations. So you were asking if they know how to fly that. Air France doubled down and, you know, mandated more training for alternate law scenarios in these planes. They also received training and new rules on relieving the captain and better task sharing between the two pilots in the cockpit. Hmm. Uh, it was also found that there were many times where the A330 pitot tubes would stop working for a brief time when flying through the intertropical convergence zone. And this is where the trade winds in the south merge with the trade winds in the north, like along the equator. So this was a fairly common thing in that area. And this is where Air France 447 crashed. Hmm. Both Air France and Airbus also faced manslaughter charges in 2011, but in 2019, the charges were dropped. So, I mean, the big takeaway from all of this is there was inadequate training for the pilots for what happened here. And there's been a lot more training about what to do when your airspeed indicator is unreliable and what to recognize and what to do when your plane leaves normal law and goes into alternate law situations. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's ultimately what led to it. It's a perfectly fine plane. It just loses its airspeed indicator at cruising altitude, and they end up crashing into the middle of the ocean. That's wild. That's one of those things where only one little thing technically ha went wrong. And yeah, and it should have been fine. Yeah, and even, you know, I, like I mentioned, at one point, the pitot tube clears up. The airspeed yeah. indicator starts working again as they're still crashing. It wasn't even frozen over for that long. Yeah. And uh, they just were panicking, you know, that one pilot kept pulling back on his side stick and there was no recovering from that. The other pilot didn't realize it. Ah, oh, man. Yeah, terrible tragedy. But, you know, super interesting to, to see how the human element plays into it. I think this was an interesting follow-up episode to the last episode because they're both stalls, but you see how a stall can affect at different phases of the flight. You know, it's, it's not just mm -hmm. dangerous at takeoff and landing. It can be dangerous at cruising altitude as well. It's just awful i feel terrible for everyone involved it's like yeah. such a simple mistake yeah if you it almost feels worse whenever there's something like so simple versus whenever there's this complicated scenario with all these things kind of accumulating because then it seems more preventable i guess oh yeah something like absolutely. this absolutely that, that's a good way to put it it was absolutely preventable did not have to happen Anyway, that's uh, Air France 447. And uh, like once again, if you want to follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod on Twitter and Instagram, I'll post some photos of uh, pitot tubes. I'll 
try to post a photo of when they find the vertical stabilizer in the ocean because it's uh it's really shocking to see just like a vertical stabilizer out in the middle of the water you know with people recovering it you don't expect to see that there hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode uh we'll be back again next week with another episode and uh like chris said earlier make sure you give us a rating give us a thumbs up give us five stars tell a friend and uh we'll, we'll keep making this podcast as long as you guys keep listening all right thanks so much chris i really appreciate thank you. it thank, thank you everyone bye bye out of black box down and looking for something else to listen to check out rooster teeth's new podcast red web hosted by our friends and co-workers trevor collins and alfredo diaz red web is a true crime podcast that dives into the internet's most bizarre mysteries conspiracies and supernatural events Personally, I'd recommend the episode called Lake City Quiet Pills, where one person's simple Reddit post honoring a deceased friend somehow sets off a crazy chain of events, including espionage, hacking, and military conspiracy. If this sounds interesting, which it should if you like our show, Black Box Down, uh, just search for Red Web wherever you're listening to this podcast and be sure to give them a listen and a subscribe. Thanks.